right? If you could say that there is just two things, just two things that human beings have done for uh, you know uh, ten thousand years, it is that we move and we build things, and we build things that connect. So like three things. We move to new places, we congregate in cities, and we connect those cities. We can't say that all human beings are tribal because there's many human beings that are not inherently tribal or don't even belong to a tribe in the first place. This is Michael Ring. I'm a cattle and crop farmer from Northern Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we talk with a geostrategist and a wonderful thinker named Parag Khanna. This is one of those people that is out in the world producing books and making, giving talks about a concept that is somewhat difficult to put into words. It's looking at how the maps of human beings have come together based on how they trade, how they share ideas, how they come together. What he calls connectography is something that we kind of intuitively know here on the podcast. And I can tell you, we had 55 minutes and we crammed as much into this conversation as I ever have in any interview I've ever done. I absolutely loved this conversation you are in for a wild ride that will uh, really touch on everything from agriculture to cryptocurrencies to the death and rebirth of cities and um, really is one of the most optimistic conversations I've had in a long time. And in this day and age, that's a really great thing. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment, but I am prepared to head out onto the road and go give a whole bunch of talks over the month of November. And then The Christmas season will be upon us. So one of the things that I did last year that turned out to be a wild success was legacy interviews. This is where somebody comes and hires me to spend an hour or an hour and a half with a loved one to record your family stories, your values, some of the history that you've heard your parents or your grandparents talk about, but you've never actually taken the time to get them to put it down on paper. Well, you can have me interview these people and talk with them and get them to open up in a way that isn't always common when they're talking to their kids or grandkids. And this has turned out to be something that people that have used this service have absolutely loved. The only limiting factor is time. I only can do so many. There's only so much, um, so many interviews I can do in a single day. So if you are interested in doing this and you'd like to have it be a Christmas gift, Go to store.articulate.ventures and sign up. I believe that if you can get signed up, we can do them before December 15th and make sure that they're available for a Christmas gift. And uh, just know this has been something that uh, listeners and uh, people that subscribe to the newsletter have absolutely loved. People have said if if my house were burning down and I could only go get one thing, I would go get this recording. So we'll send you a digital copy so you don't have to worry about fires, but uh, we'd love it if you did this. So go to store.articulate.ventures. Also, the network has seen some pretty dramatic growth in the last few days as based on a percentage of our overall population. People are realizing, hey, as we're heading into winter, as I'm doing less social activities, I want to be connected with a group of people that love the podcast. They want to talk about the things that they hear here and also build on their own skills. Right now we are just wrapping up Sober October, where everybody decided they're going to give up alcohol or THC or caffeine. 
and this shared experience that we have as a group where people are talking about what they're realizing, they're um, talking about how much more productive they've become or things that they learned that they would never have seen had they been involved with this substance. It's a great thing, but we also have a place where we do Circular Firing Squad, which is a debate program where we take controversial subjects and let people come at it from all different angles and a whole bunch of other things. One of the biggest things that's been popular lately is because I'm doing these talks out in public, I uh, have practiced some of the talks inside of the network to get feedback. So if you'd like to see some early talks, if you'd like to be connected with a group of really amazing people from all over the United States and even into Canada, we would love to have you. You can learn more by going to network.articulate.ventures. All right, without further ado, let's go to this fascinating interview with Parag Khanna. Prag Khanna, welcome to the podcast. So good to meet you, Vance. You are a prolific writer. You've been on TED stages several times, and uh, your concepts are actually pretty novel and new. So when you're just introducing your ideas to a world of people that have maybe never heard of you, how do you quickly get to um, the, the core fundamental ideas that you like to talk about? In one sentence, I travel, therefore I am. Uh, you know, traveling is my methodology. Travel is what I've been doing since birth. I mean, I have, I'm an academic. I've been a professor. I have a PhD. But at the same time, I test everything I read and every interview I conduct with a so-called expert by going out on the ground and seeing it. And my books have been the result of the contrast between what I and everyone else reads and talks about versus what I actually physically go and see around the world. I would say what I'm most you know, proud of is having traveled to more than 150 countries, pretty much everywhere in the world I've ever wanted to go. And, uh, you know, I, but nothing's going to stop me. Keep on traveling. Well, it's interesting. One of your core ideas back in 2012 was about how borders are completely man-made and things that we think are immutable are, uh, you know, just a, something that we've created. And one of the points that you made that really struck me was 50 years ago, there were a lot less countries to visit. And as balkanization has mm -hmm. happened, there's more and more countries. So explain why you think that has happened and kind of what implications that has for how people view themselves. Well, I mean, borders are, of course, completely man-made. So it's, it's hardly my idea founded in 2012. It's just kind of a fact. Uh, and of course, borders are not immutable, nor are states. You know, as you just pointed out, in 1945, when the UN was founded, there were only 51 members. Today, there's nearly 200. So obviously, no state is sacred. When the Soviet Union collapsed, I'm sure it thought it was sacred, but obviously it proved not to be. I'm sure that's been true of many states in the past. And, you know, one of the things I pointed out in my connectography book is that we have infrastructure, man-made infrastructure pipelines, electricity grids that pass through and under sovereign states that predate those states and that will still be around after those states collapse. Just look at Iraq, right? So, you know, the fact is that uh, there's nothing uh, permanent about states. Um, and, uh, in, in, and when we look at a map and we, you know, this is, I think, one of the tragedies of, of modern life uh, is that we, in our, in our kids' classrooms, in our offices, we hang these maps on the wall that just show the world is divided. And it's the one map, the one map that every classroom has and hanging in the whole world is the map that teaches you that, the, that, that we are separated from each other by these completely arbitrary lines, as if they're somehow sacred and immutable, whereas no such thing is true. Yeah, and it's really fascinating because 
in the past, the way that people before you had the ability to create maps and engineers and surveys, people could only say, let's use this physical border, this mountain range, this river to decide where you should be or where you shouldn't be. But then once you have this digital age and, and maps in and of themselves, people start viewing themselves differently. It's, it's a, you know, it's something is akin to water, right? People view themselves as Americans or Canadians. And, and yet that's entirely constructed, but because it's so much a part of our everyday lives, it's difficult to separate ourselves from those ideas. It's such a great point. I think you phrased it in an extremely nuanced way, which is that we are basically a visual species, right? Or we've come to be one. So it, it and by the way, many borders in the world today still are, of course, natural features, such as a river or a mountain range. And whereas it might be demarcated by GIS in a formal way, basically between Chile and Argentina, you know, it's one of these more or less kinds of things like the Andes mountains, right? And therefore, when Chileans and Argentinians look at each other, it's sort of like, you know, it's the Chileans over there on the other side of the Andes. It's not they are precisely at, you know, this to west of this meridian. And if one of them steps one foot across the line, we shoot them, you know? And, and, I, and I feel like, of course, in most of history, that's generally the way things have been. And, and again, the important thing is to remember that that still, fortunately, still persists to some degree and that we could go back to that world and have a bit more fluidity around our movements across natural features rather than viewing, you know, again, artificial militarized walls and borders as being the, you know, sort of permanent divisions between ourselves, because those are inevitably going to change. You know, one of the challenges of being an author in the way that you are is you're talking both about the present moment, how things are, and then how things will be. And your most recent book, Move, came about after the, the pandemic, or you must have been writing it during the pandemic. But no, that it I was... finished it before the pandemic. Actually. Oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah. so this is fascinating. So why don't you talk a little bit about um, this concept of move and then how the pandemic impacted the, the core philosophy of your book? Great, great question. So um, MOVE was meant to be a sequel to connectography. Connectography is at the functional geography of infrastructure. It's how we build the world. And MOVE is about human geography, so how we move about the world, basically. And human geography is something that I had not yet deeply tackled in a book unto itself, which is to say, what is the distribution of 8 billion people on the planet? And what will that distribution be? Where will you, Vance, live in 2030? 2040, 2050, you, your children, your family, your loved ones, your friends, fellow Americans, fellow North Americans, fellow members of the human species, where will we be and why? And to answer that question, you know, you have to go back about 100,000 years and look at the fact that we've always been nomadic always been migratory. Humans have always been moving. To move is human. And so the fact that there was a pandemic, the fact that there was a lockdown, and there have been pandemics, and you know, there have been pandemics before, there have never been lockdowns as extreme as what we did this past year. And I think it's important for people to remember that the this lockdown of 2020 was the single most coordinated act in human history, right? Never has human society coordinated one single thing within a short period of time. And of course, we didn't coordinate a great opening, right? We instead, we coordinated a great closure. And that's not an accident because sovereign states control their borders and they want to prevent the movement and the flow of people and pathogens across those borders. So the fact is, it's something quite remarkable that happened, but it does not mark the end of history. And where we were in history up until that moment of the lockdown was that migration was expanding, you know, 
know, openness was accelerating. More people crossed borders in 2019 in one single year than had ever crossed borders in history. 1.5 billion people. So obviously, the notion that we or you know we're we're heading in a direction that was fragmented, tribalized, tribal, balkanized, splintering was in some respects nonsense, right? The volume of data flows, internet traffic, to some degree portfolio capital investment, all of these things were, have reached enormous, enormous volumes. And the fact is we're gonna go back to that. And we're gonna go back to that probably with a vengeance in many ways, because you can't stop some of these forces that drive people to move. It's people seeking economic opportunity and jobs. It's fleeing civil war, genocide, terror, you know, conflict. Um, it is uh, technological automation being driven away from your factory, or you know, enjoying remote work and moving to some place where you can just you know live in a cheaper place and have a better quality of life. Um, and of course, it is climate change, right? And climate has always been present, of course, in shaping where we live. And climate change is now accelerating. Therefore, it too will drive us to move. So the notion that this one pandemic, as awful, tragic, and severe as it has been, is somehow going to overturn all of these forces that drive human beings to seek stability, ecological stability, economic stability, social stability, political stability, um, and a good climate, a good latitude, an altitude, and attitude, as I say in the book, um, you know, the pandemic is not going to stop that. The pandemic in many ways will just accelerate it. It's an interesting thing about people moving into cities. So maybe, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, we tipped over past 50% where people are living in cities. And if you go look at the Santa Fe Institute, they, they discovered the rule of 15, where you have the super linear growth. So for every time your population doubles, then people's uh, income goes up by 15%, their uh, number of patents, so trying to, trying to factor how many ideas are sharing, number of new businesses, the speed with which they walk, and even things that are negative, things like crime also goes up by 15%. But one thing that would have been impossible for people like Joffrey West to have predicted would have been, what happens when you don't have to physically be in the same place, when you can share ideas like this, you and I talking, me being able to watch your body language, being able to feel like I know you because I can see you. What do you think the impact of like the digitization of the human being does to the growth of cities going forward? Well, I mean, neither rule is actually universal. So the rule of 15 and super linear scaling and so forth obviously doesn't apply to Sao Paulo, Brazil, or Jakarta, Indonesia, right, in terms of things like productivity and patent output, because there are no patents being produced in Jakarta, Indonesia, right? Um, and all you have is just more congestion, more traffic, highly unlivable and totally unproductive places. So it certainly applies if you're comparing New York and Tokyo, and you can obviously see certain patterns. So I don't refute the work. It's highly important and super interesting work. Um, but it isn't universal in that way. But I, I but again, obviously, so you know, what it does prove, and that's, this is the important point, is that when we can congregate in cities, certain magical things happen, basically, you know, we become more productive, and we get that, uh, that hive mind effect, if you will, kicking in. So it's mostly a positive phenomenon. It has been if it weren't a positive thing, Vance, we wouldn't be doing it, because we have a choice as to whether we decide to move to New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, or to simply all go live on farms. So that's useful. Now, in terms of digitization, we're not all digital. So that's not universal either. And we don't can't all be remote workers. Uh, actually, the, you know, I think it's a really a remarkable feat 
that 30 to 40% of the global workforce is location independent and can do their work remotely. That's a staggeringly high percentage of the global workforce, you, me, and many other people. But let's not forget the majority of human beings still need to physically be in the physical place where they physically work. So let's you know take a pause, shed a tear, whatever the case may be, but most people are, that doesn't mean you're a manual worker, right? But it does mean that you're required to be there. Let's say you're a government worker and going to a government office, right? Or you're a doctor. Um, you know, most doctors aren't doing telemedicine, right? You're physically treating patients every single day. So I, I do celebrate the remote worker. Obviously, it's a big theme in the book is, is you know, young people being digital nomads and getting to choose where they live and build a better life for themselves is a very important part of how the next generation is going to sort of, you know, expand their horizons, if you will, and contribute to building our future civilization. So I'm pro that. But the operative law, I guess, becomes Metcalf's law, right? The value of the network increases uh, in proportion to the density of the nodes and the connectivity between nodes and the network. So more of a, another sort of mathematical approach to understanding things. And that is actually how, not looking at cities in and of themselves, but how cities relate to each other. And it's a principle that I discussed in Connectography because I was saying, look at this world. That's not just three or four major cities that run the whole planet. There's about 50 major uh, mega city hubs. And even if it's not one of the mega city hubs, there's you know, 100, 150 really important cities in the world. And what every single one of those cities wants to the extent it has a psychology, you know, more than anything else is to connect to other cities. It doesn't want walls, borders, moats, and barriers between itself and other cities. That's the last thing any city leader wants. Every city leader and almost every resident of a city wants more airline connections, more internet cables, more stock exchange trading, um, and more talent mobility and more digital interaction with other cities. Because you prove your importance in the world as a function of your connectivity. You're not important based on your size. You're not important based on your number of people. You're, based, you're, you're important based on your degree of connectivity. And that's something that, that cities embody is that principle. And therefore, all cities in a way are contributing to this Metcalf's law on a planetary scale, even if they're not coordinating and doing it. Man, this just got really exciting for me. Like the because the concept of Metcalf's law, when you start to draw it out, right? So you take a little dot and then you make another dot. And how many connections can there be between those? Well, just one. But as soon as you start adding in another dot and another dot and you start interconnecting, you start seeing wow, you have exponential growth. You you actually can see how every for every time you add a new person into a community, the interconnections between them just skyrocket. And so for me, this was like a, a mathematical concept that was akin to like staring off into the universe where you're like, look at how powerful this is. But then when you start to um, have that collide with the, the, the tribal brain that you kind of mentioned before, you know, Dunbar realized that you can only keep track of 150 different relationships in your mind. There's a reason that all church congregations are around 130 families, right? There's a reason that you have the county breakdowns and the parish breakdowns are somewhat similar because the human mind can only handle so many connections. Is there a limiting factor to cities or is it because they're emergent, there's something else going on there that, that, that supersedes individuals and even the communities of people that they can know? Well, there's so many, I, 
you you said limiting factors, but it's also maybe just you know boundary constraints or just part of the evolution or the stage that we're at in our evolution, which is to say that you know not all continents are deeply connected to each other. You know, if they were, then there would be even more connectivity, and we wouldn't be limited. And if you look right now, believe it or not, across the Atlantic Ocean, across the South Atlantic, um, African and South American cities are striving to trade more with each other, opening more ports and shipping routes. There's some inner fiber optic internet cables now, and you know, you would say, well, these are relatively underdeveloped regions of the world. They're quite poor. And nonetheless, they're striving and yearning to connect and to be part of that overall, again, intercity global network. So the fact that any one person's individual mind is limited in how many connections it feels they can embrace and understand and, and hold dear is not necessarily a limitation on a global scale in terms of how much connectivity we can build. And this is the difference between one of the things I always explain, the difference between connectivity and globalization. Globalization is a measure of how intense and voluminous our interactions are at any given point in time. But you can't have any of them without connectivity. Connectivity is the capacity. And we're building ludicrous volumes of connective capacity in the world. Every pipeline, every railway, every highway, every internet cable, every electricity grid is part of the capacity for global connectivity and exchange of goods, services, ideas, capital, and so on. So whether or not we use it at any given time or that you or I feel that we need it or can handle it without our brain exploding, you know, is um, that's, that's, a, that's just a kind of, that's meteorology, right? Just a day-to-day -day variation. But fundamentally, there is no limit to our collective ability to continuously build this connectivity and the capacity for that connectivity. So that means basically, fine, you may be comfortable with 150 people today, but you can just go somewhere else and connect to 100, another 150 people tomorrow and redefine what your tribe is and embrace a new tribe, a new identity, a new place. And that's also possible in a totally connected world. So you've like traveled all over the world and you've seen um, the way that people live in these large, you know, super mega regions, these these cities that are so vast that their numbers larger than the human mind can actually, you know, understand. Um, what did the, the pandemic show you about cities that uh, you didn't expect? Right. Bringing everybody all together and. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have a great question there other than something seemed to be revealed about cities during the pandemic that wasn't there before. Right. I know what you mean. And I think there are a few things there. So for one thing, and I want to immediately begin with this sort of cautionary note, a lot of people announced that the pandemic means the death of the city, right? You heard it all, you know, heard it so many times. And when people said that, they basically have this image in their head that when, when, when someone says the city, they mean New York. And they mean Los Angeles, right? And, and therefore, if people left those cities, it's the death of the city. So it's wrong in so many ways. You know, let me, let me begin to enumerate. First of all, you know, New York and Los Angeles don't represent all cities around the world. And people weren't leaving all cities around the world during the pandemic. Most of the human population lives in Asia. I devoted my previous book, The Future is Asian, to exactly this issue. And it, you'll never meet an Asian, literally of the 5 billion Asians on the planet Earth, you know, I'm literally speaking about most of humanity, they're not going to leave the city, right? <laughs> Asians will flock to cities always because the quality of life differential between the city and the countryside in Asia is still vast. You're not going to have your 5G fiber broadband outside of the capital city of a major, you know, of an Asian country, right? And you're not going to have good schools, good hospitals, 
none of those perks, right? Restaurants, you name it, uh, even just uh, stability and you know access to connectivity, uh, um, you know, even in the airport, you're not going to have that in a lot of Asia, except for in the big cities. So fear not for global urbanization. Global urbanization is going to continue. Now, even if we believe that the entire world is just the West or just America. And everyone operates like America. Let's just take America as a microcosm. The fact that New York may quote unquote lose, it doesn't mean the city has lost because the city actually always wins. We have 7,000 years of urbanization. As you pointed out, 10 years ago, we reached a real milestone, which is that the majority of the human population lives in cities. And that percentage is still going to continue to accelerate. So the fact is that the city always wins and New York's loss is still another city's gain. It's Austin, it's Miami, it's Denver, it's Seattle right? LA's loss is a, is a gain for, uh, for Phoenix or for Calgary, for Toronto, right? Uh, for what, whatever the case may be. So some city is always winning. The only question is which one, but the city always wins. Now, the next point is within the city, right? What has changed during the pandemic and what attracts people to certain cities over other cities? Here, we also have some pretty universal rules. You need um, affordability, right? People will leave overpriced places for affordable places. Pretty straightforward. Now there's the kind of, let's say, the more qualitative issue um, around livability. Now, given the pandemic, people say, well, I'm going to spend more time at home. I'm going to be traveling less. I don't want to live in a shoebox. I want to be, I want to be near a park. So one phenomenon that I do think is durable is this idea of a 15-minute city, right? And a lot of places were going in this direction anyway. New York was eliminating uh, you know, car lanes and replacing them with bicycle lanes and public street parks and cafes before the pandemic, right? So doing it for 15 years. And other cities have been doing it too, saying let's have maximized green space, public amenities, public Wi-Fi, you know, uh, eliminate parking lots and, uh, and, and, you know, add more bike lanes, all that kind of stuff. The 15 minute city, make sure that everything you could possibly want, uh, food, movies, schools, medical clinics, everything is within a 15 minute walk from where you are. And I think that is probably a very, very, um, kind of that that's an idea that's now become quite rooted, uh, all around the world in, in those cities that can afford to do it. Paris is a real leader in this area, you know, Berlin, Barcelona, and so forth. Yeah, I'm struck by your examples of New York and L.A. My experience in both of those cities is that um, the the biggest value that you get out of being in a city is the ability to you know collide serendipitously with other people. But in New York and L.A., it's not actually that easy, whereas you have these new cities that were much younger. They were able to make infrastructure changes or at least as they were building out infrastructure, saying, how can we adapt and and not have the same problems that the BART system in San Francisco has or the the subway system in New York, and uh, and therefore they're much more um, able to adapt and uh, and grow. And so it may just be that the old cities that started first just have some amount of decay or wearing down, and the other cities are able to to grow much faster. It's so true. So you know, inertia. On the one hand, it's sort of you know we built great infrastructure and used it well and thoroughly. If you think about the East Coast kind of Amtrak corridor, right? Boston, New York, Washington obviously serves millions of passengers every single day and has for decades. But now you can't build a more modern high-speed rail because of NIMBYism. So you already have the rail, so you can't stop the rail and you can't rip out the rail because everyone needs the rail and therefore you don't get don't get to build a better rail and no one wants to build a new rail next to the old rail, right? So in a nutshell. That's that's why you know you get places that get kind of bypassed. Meanwhile, look at um, the Middle East. Let's look at Dubai and Abu Dhabi. 
right? The two main centers, the two main emirates of the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East. Um, now there, they of course don't have any railways. So they're able to just say, and they've got a lot of oil money. So they can just call up Virgin Hyperloop, call up Elon Musk and say, hey, you know, build us a Hyperloop, let's do it, right? And of course, because it's um, a, a hereditary monarchy, an authoritarian state, they can pretty much do whatever they want. And of course, this is something that's in the public interest, uh, but they can pretty much snap their fingers and, and get it done because there's nothing standing in their way. So there's, a, there's definitely that kind of phenomenon that's part and parcel of history. And that's why places that have these legacy institutions need to constantly modernize. London is a good example of this because London obviously has is a gigantic city, has many boroughs, 20 different boroughs. It's like 20 cities, you know, sort of accumulated together, um, agglomerated together. Um, and they're always improving the tube network, right, which is their subway above ground, uh, you know, uh, and underground, um, and modifying it, expanding it, adding new lines, you know, speeding it up and so forth. And that, that's how you stay relevant, is these incremental improvements in your infrastructure to suit the times. Yeah, I could not believe when I spent time in London that how far you could ride their public system outside of the main corridors of the city. After having been in D.C. and New York, like you get on that and you can go kind of far, but eventually it ends. With with London, you realize like, holy geez, this is so far away and it will take you all the way literally out to the countryside, all the way to the coast. And oh, yeah. and uh, it's very, very your, rare in the U.S. You spend yeah. your whole day, your whole life riding the tube in London. It is true. It, it's, it's amazing. People don't necessarily appreciate um, how extensive it is the way you just described. And it's also, also relatively cheap. You know, the thing that strikes me about people that study international relations, right? You have a view almost like an architect does of a house where you're looking down at the blueprint and you're always seeing things from the big picture. When you think about these large global um, phenomena, like the connectivity of cities and how people are moving, where does the individual fit into this? Because it seems to me that there is, um, we're having to go through some sort of philosophical revolution uh, in order to be able to adapt to this, you know, we're in the age of acceleration. Things keep moving faster and faster and faster. And the philosophical or religious um, traditions that used to answer questions don't seem to apply now. And that really comes down to the individual. How do they view themselves within these larger groups? How, do you, how does this strike you? Well, I think you're raising two things in parallel. One is just the role of the individual somehow as, I guess you would say, in economics, a price taker, right? I mean, you know, we don't get to shape the system as individuals. We're victims of it. We have to respect, we have to respond to it. In parallel, you're also talking about philosophy or religion or worldview, you know, and not everyone sort of has that per se, but obviously it, it shapes how we respond or how we feel about what's happening kind of in, in, in the world. So the first one is more material, right? And the second one is more kind of ideational. So on the material, I think it's it's really interesting. We are technically on a, you know, at the, the median human being or the, the mean or average human being, you know, has more agency than ever before. Right, you know, even people from relatively underdeveloped countries, their passports are now more accepted around the world. You know, it's getting digitized and machine-readable passport. There are countries that are looking for people with all different kinds of skills. There's an embassy somewhere near you. You can apply and you can get a visa and you can go, you know, travel and experience the world. Ideally, right? Not everyone. Most people will still die in the country that they were born, but more people have opportunity than ever before. 
Um, so I, I would reject the notion that some people say, which is that you know we're we're completely hopeless in this world of ever growing and spiraling complexity, and we can't do anything about it. You can, you can, for example, move, right? And that's a, exactly what my book is about. Saying you know we are eight billion individual agents, eight billion people. Um, you know, a, a smaller number of families, if you want to take the family unit, which is still, of course, very, very important. Um, and, you know, and we actually have uh, more capacity than, than before. Even if you're stuck where you are, you have digital access to cryptocurrencies, to information, markets, whatever the case may be. And so there really is a deep change going on in the role of the individual, and the individual matters in many ways more than, than ever before. Uh, you know, and even the fact that your data may be being, you know, sort of surveilled or stolen or spied on. You know, again, your the fact that you have useful data at all is something relatively novel, right? If you think about it in history, that someone would even want your data, right? That you even have that monetary value, that you are even a data point rather than just a body, you know, is actually something quite novel. And and again, it's a sign of what is happening globally. We are all part of this global you know, sort of network uh, civilization, uh, as I described, we're not equal members of this civilization. It's not a utopian and necessarily a positive thing. There are many dystopian and negative elements to it, but it is a material fact. So I want to be as objective, you know, in a way as possible about this. You and a person in India or Pakistan or Cambodia have certain things in common. You own a mobile phone. There's a there's a phone. There's a number attached to it. You can reach out and call someone. You know the uh, kind of six degrees of separation has pretty much collapsed at this point. It's probably down to like three degrees. I think we could probably test that. It might be really interesting. Um, there's that. Then there's the ideological or ideational intellectual questions you're asking, which are super fascinating. But obviously, there isn't one kind of right answer. You know, do I believe that there's a certain intellectual teleology to the world? Uh, yes, I do, actually. And which is not to say we're all going to take on one view, but I do believe that there's a narrative arc, right? And the narrative arc is about connectivity, right? If you could say that there is just two things, just two things that human beings have done for uh, you know uh, ten thousand years. It is that we move and we build things, and we build things that connect. So like three things. We move to new places, we congregate in cities, and we connect those cities. We can't say that all human beings are tribal because there's many human beings that are not inherently tribal or don't even belong to a tribe in the first place, right? Um, so that's a myth. It's not, it's not a useless myth. It's, it's, a, it's a factual statement in some places, but it's not universal. The universal truths, if you were an alien that, were, that could not understand any human language and you were observing human behavior and you were just floating in the orbit above the planet and watching the world population that started out very small and grew to a billion and stayed at a billion and then all of a sudden became 8 billion people and you had to fly back to your other galaxy and write a report about these strange, you know, ants and, and you know, <laughs> humans moving about the earth like an ant colony over a 10,000 year period, your report would say the following, you know, these creatures move, they build things, and they connect those things to each other. Because you wouldn't be able to see the borders, you wouldn't be able to see the tribes, you wouldn't be able to understand or decipher the different religions, you would simply see what we do. So I, I make those statements as, again, you know, factual observations, devoid of ideology, but in a certain vision, a certain view, worldview emerges from that because it is the sum total of our human behavior. Therefore, it constitutes an idea. And that idea happens to be one more powerful than any, any religion per se. So there's 
uh, you know, you're talking about things that are um, emergent, right? They, they occur whether or not any one individual is there. If you or I go away, they will exist. And we have so much, so little agency to change the overarching picture. There's some amount of randomness or, or things that happen in the world. So I'm struck that uh, just this last weekend, um, Jack Dorsey came to Twitter and said, hyperinflation is here. You know, it's already happening as it goes in the U.S., so it goes to the rest of the world. How much do you think, well, one, you're, you, you studied at the London School of Economics. Do you agree with him? Is hyperinflation coming? And then two, is um, when you look at that and how it impacts the future, um, when do you start seeing those things? How much does it impact the long-term future? Is it like, ah, it'll just be a bump and it'll get smoothed out over time? Well, I mean, almost by definition, when you have a hyperinflationary moment, it doesn't last forever because it has to collapse. So, and that's exactly what happens in any historical or present, you know, case of hyperinflation. It's not sustainable. Whether or not it's here, no, of course not, because hyperinflation, again, by definition, is a significantly higher rate of inflation that we have right now, right? Uh, if if you're saying you're in a hyperinflationary moment right now, you obviously don't know a whole lot about history because, or or even about Venezuela today or other countries because hyperinflation is like, you know, 1,000, 10,000% inflation. So are we in the early stages of inflation? Potentially. I mean, I think that there's a very in interesting conversation going on right now about the composition or of drivers of today's temporary, I think, inflation, because there's equally powerful deflationary forces out there. So we have to bear those in mind. Um, you know, the inflationary or the inflationists, you know, you might say, um, would look at uh, the supply constraints today, look at the trade war, um, look at the um, obviously the, um, uh, the the fiscal stimulus and the dovish monetary policy and all of these things. But I think each of those can be still be unwound in a way, right? Some of them are temporary. Some of them are are um, again policy driven and that can be changed. Some of them are supply chain driven that can be changed and so forth. Overall, if you take the abundance view, you know, this would be deflationary. If you combine the abundance view of raw material production, digitization, automation, as well as the deflation in the world population, right? This is one of the significant points of departure of my, of my move book is that the world population is hitting a plateau. And a, a stagnant and declining world population is obviously deflationary in terms of at least, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, upward pressure on prices so long as you still have uh, productive capacity. So if you're automating everything and have a smaller world population, that's not the kind of environment that you would describe as uh, inflationary, right? And the cost of, uh, of, of some of the critical uh, aspects of our economic basket, like housing, you know, or could could be set to collapse. If you think about the oversupply, America has the second largest vacant housing stock on the planet, next to Japan. And there's there's a reason why both of us have such a high vacant housing stock. It's because we actually are have completely plateaued in our populations. Without immigration, America's population would already have begun to decline, uh, and the higher birth rate that immigrants have in Japan, it is in absolute decline hundreds of thousands of people every single year, uh, you know, there, there are more deaths than births in Japan. Um, so they have empty homes everywhere. We have empty homes everywhere. So, you know, housing has to be thought of as well as part of this uh, situation. But is there right now this is like a shocking... housing costs? It's because of like, higher lumber prices. But you can't look at higher lumber prices and say, oh, yes, that's a permanent condition. Of course, it's not a permanent condition.
This, I mean, so the, I don't, I, I couldn't possibly uh, debate your your fact on the um, vacant houses. It's just shocking. So I'm trying to put this into context to say, well, is that because it's in the you know parts of cities that people no longer want to live in and that are decayed that eventually will come back? Is it because you know, like how, how is one to even wrap their mind around that as we watch so much money get poured into the building of new houses? Right. So it's a, it's a location question, right? So if people are moving to Boise, Idaho and uh, you know, or to Denver, Colorado, and they haven't zoned in advance for enough, um, you know, sort of, sort of housing stock to be built as people pour in, of course, the price is going to go up. That's just simple supply and demand. Um, but again, will it eventually stable, stabilize is the key question. And the answer historically is yes, certainly in America, it's going to stabilize. Man, <laughs> that's fascinating. I, um, I'm, I'm so thrown off. I don't even know where to go. I, like, um, tell me more about, um, what happens in a place like Japan if they, you know, they, they historically have been very uh, limited in how many people they let into their country. They have a, a really old population. What happens to a country when they just stop letting people in and their birth rate doesn't uh, keep up with their death rate? It's a great question. We'll be watching this play out in real time over the next 10, 20 years in Japan. We've been watching it for the last 10, so you already have a, a, some signal of where things are going. So for one thing, um, it's irreversible, right? They, they and other countries have tried lots of policies to promote fertility, and they've always failed. You know, No country that has tried to increase fertility through subsidies and you know, um, you know, gifts to women and you know, generous uh, childcare uh, kind of subsidies and, and, and even uh, paternal um, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, sort of sort of benefits um, and all of these kinds of things. It never really works. It maybe worked for like a year. But that is not exactly going to increase the world population, right? And if Sweden, you know, has um, has very generous paternity leave, again, Sweden is a tiny country, right? Again, it's not going to move the needle in the grand scheme of things. China is, is started saying, you know, please have more than one child, right? They of course restricted for a long long time. They had a one child policy. Now they're saying have two, have three children. Can I just tell you, it's not going to happen. Right, because young people today are highly economically insecure. They're motivated by other, even uh, you know, sort of post-materialist values, sustainability, climate change, and they don't want to have more kids. And they can't afford it when they're living in cities and so forth. So you go back to Japan. Japan's always almost a harbinger of the future, right? They um, they're they're not going to have any children. The population is literally dying off. But here's the here's the kicker. There have never been as many foreigners in Japan as there are today. They have let 3 million people onto the Japanese islands. Now, remember, you don't swim to Japan, right? So there are 3 million people who have legally entered Japan, and Japan is fully aware that these people have entered. Japan has let them in. Japan has even encouraged them to come. And that doesn't make headline news, but it's a fact. Right. So there have never been three now is it's kind of a drop in the bucket in a population of more than 100 million people. But as the number of Japanese people declines and the number of foreigners grows, right, it's some at some point in the future, maybe the distant future, it's no longer just a drop in the bucket. Um, and even if it's statistically still not a big deal. Uh, the fact is that it does bring about certain changes, changes in policies, changes in, in the idea of what Japanese culture is. Now, Japanese culture is, as an as a ethnographic phenomenon is something that's obviously quite insular. But in terms of 
the cultures that thrive on the island known as the islands known as Japan, that becomes something new, something novel, something we've never seen before. And you have Chinese and Filipinos and Koreans and Indians and Bangladeshis and Americans and Europeans and all manner of people are literally gathering right now as we speak in Japan because they find it to be a very livable place. And it is from a climate standpoint, it's one of the places that I call in the book a climate oasis. You know, on a relative basis, it's better off than being in, say, Egypt, right? And it's obviously a rich, stable, uh, safe, secure uh, country, kind of place where Americans can say, hey, well, you know what? I'm going to go and live in Japan and buy a little house and fix it up and, you know, ride out the next couple of decades and just enjoy life. And that's exactly what people are doing. They're doing the same thing in Italy as they are in Japan. So I think that, um, you know, it doesn't mean that what the meaning of Japanese-ness may not change all that much in the next 20 years. But the day-to-day -day life for the human beings who live on Japan is going to change quite a lot. Um, and I observe this in a lot of places where, in a way, like your unofficial language becomes English. There are districts of Tokyo that have more foreigners than Japanese people. And basically, it's like you can pretty much get by in English in those neighborhoods. Now, obviously, you would go there and you would want to learn some Japanese. But there are, you could pretty much live your day-to-day -day life and not speak any Japanese in certain parts of Tokyo. Would you or I have been having this conversation 15 years ago, Vance, that, oh my goodness, there's so many foreigners hanging out in like this part of Tokyo that you don't even need to speak Japanese? That's crazy. You never would have thought that. Now, let me just give you another example just quickly. It's Berlin. It's a place I know really well. I've lived there off and on for the last 30 years. And um, if you, there's a, there's a, I quote this very, very famous, one of the most famous lines in all of German or modern political campaign history. There was a, a politician who used this phrase, Kinderstadtinde. And Kinderstadtinde means, means um, have more children, stop importing Indians, right? And that was uttered 30 years ago, almost to the day. And I quote that guy in the book. And I say, what if you took that politician, Norbert Rutgen or something was his name, and you said, hey, Norbert, I got some news for you. In 30 years' time, your country, Germany, right, with its history of ethno-nationalism and everything else that we don't need to repeat right now, your country in 30 years is going to have 1 million Africans. It's going to have 6 million Turks. It's going to have about 2 million Arabs. It's going to have about 4 or 5 million people from the Balkans and the former Soviet Union. You're going to have about 400,000 Chinese people and about 50,000 Indians and a whole smattering of other people from all over the world. Dude, he'd have a heart attack on the spot, right? He would drop dead on the spot. Well, Vance, welcome to Germany, 2021. I just summed up for you German demographics in the year 2021. Right. And they just had an election. Right. Uh, uh, just uh, recently. And of course, a left wing coalition, more or less won, and not the far right anti-immigrant parties. They lost. They got wiped out. So the fact is, whether it's Germany, Japan, other places, Canada, obviously, is the melting pot par excellence at this point. Canada takes in almost as many migrants as we do in America with one-tenth of our population. So pound for pound, most generous country in the world in terms of immigration. And it's becoming a country that they call more brown than white. It's kind of where, the, where Canada is going. Again, is it, a, is it an election issue? No. You know, do they have a Donald Trump of Canada? No. You know, they have Justin Trudeau, who also just got reelected. And every Canadian more or less stands behind. Not every Canadian, fine. But there's a political consensus that mass migration is good for the country. I think that, uh, so I spent a lot of time in the countryside of Canada, or at least I did before COVID hit. 
And uh, the very thing that you're describing to me sounds like the precursor to more balkanization. You know, I one time was at a, um, a cattle ranching thing in Alberta and a guy named Peter Zehan stood up in front of this crowd and he, he talks about his geopolitical worldview. And then he says, and this is why I believe Alberta should break off and see and, and become a part of the United States, the 51st state. And I thought, oh, my God, you're going to get booed here, man. And no, it was wild, wild cheers. Like uh, it was shocking to me. I was not expecting it. Because I think I'm sure they were entertained. Yeah, uh, certainly. I've, I've been to Alberta. Was it the Calgary Stampede? No, no. This was uh, the, with the people that send their cattle to the Stampede. This was the, these people. Woo! I loved it. I had a great time there. So I, I think that when you say things like this, where it's like the the culture that exists right now um, is not going to be there, and that it's going to be something very different, right? So you you could frame it as a negativity that people should want this sort of cultural change, or it's it's inevitable. But to the people that are facing that, it probably feels somewhat like an invasion. It feels like they had a cultural space where they right. fit, they understood, they they thrived, they built. Um, wh- wh- how do you think this will play out culturally as more and more people come in? Will it just be the, well, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny at all that there are people who feel that way, but let's be clear that we can measure these propositions, what you're saying and what I'm saying, and we're not necessarily saying different things, but let's remember that Canada is a liberal democratic society with a very high voter participation. So if everyone felt the way, you know, that you're describing some people as feeling, then Justin Trudeau would not be prime minister and they wouldn't have 400,000 people coming in. It's their sovereign choice to do so. And they're doing it on the basis of what, what the, the electorate has voted. So obviously it's a significant minority of people who feel threatened uh, by this in the way that you're describing. But do they matter? Yes, of course they do. Or do their opinions matter? Yes. Should they be uh, compensated or should they in some way be in a way, um, you know, engaged, you know, in a, in a discourse that makes them feel that this is not going to harm, you know, their values and their interests? Of course they should. Absolutely they should. But also part of it hinges on this definition of like Canada. You know, in my work in political geography, um, I'm okay with the idea that you may have, you know, more enclaves. You don't have to necessarily call it balkanization. Balkanization obviously carries very negative uh, connotations. Uh, it's it's just about geographic and cultural drift in a very large country, and I'm okay with that. We have red state and blue state in America. Dallas, Texas, is a you know blue city in a red state. Um, and people are entitled to flock and move and congregate according to the places where they feel that their values are best represented. So cowboy country of Canada could remain cowboy country of Canada and be be very uh, sort of conservative. It might be uh, in a, a it might be a zone or a patch that spans multiple Canadian provinces. And those people may say, hey, over here, we're not going to participate in the federal schemes to relocate Syrian refugees. We don't want any. And they're going to be able potentially to say they're going to win. They might win that battle politically and sort of, you know, no Syrian refugees here. Let all the Syrian refugees go to Toronto and you deal with them in your liberal big city. I am okay with that. We've got to be clear here. There's not, I'm not some utopian cosmopolitan liberal who's coming in to impose mass migration upon you and to drown and dilute your culture, not by any stretch of the imagination. We will continue to have new formations and political groupings and even secessionist movements, like the type that you are describing being kind of whipped up in a frenzy. We're, going to all, we're always going to have that. Remember, it's my job to look at the map and to say that, hey, wait a minute, we actually have 200 sovereign nations. And 75 years ago, we only had 50. 
I'm the last guy on the planet Earth who, who's going to pretend that the map is stuck and frozen the way it is now. I'm a Wilsonian. I'm a Wilsonian who believes that the project of self-determinations of peoples is perhaps never complete. And I want, I want Palestinians to have their own country. I want the Kurds to have their own country. And on and on it goes. So in a way, I'm not anti-tribal by any stretch of the imagination, right? You know, in a way, if you're a Wilsonian nationalist and you believe in self-determination, in a way, you're sort of a tribalist. So put me on that side of the fence, not on the other side, right? What I'm for is a recognition, a mutual recognition that, you know, these different political groupings should find ways to peacefully coexist because they actually, despite their desire to be independently governed according to their own preferences and values, still have a lot to benefit from relations with each other. So even if you had Quebec go independent, right, even if you have Texas go independent, Texas is not exactly going to be an island, right? Texas is going to have relations with America and with Mexico, right? And that's the way all of history has worked. So it's kind of hard to deny that that's what's going on. If you even look at the Balkan Balkans, like the real Balkans, let me tell you a crazy story. Because I went to high school in, in Germany. And when I was a kid in the 1990s, and I was living near Hamburg, we were watching this every day. We were watching the genocide unfold. I was writing letters to newspapers expressing my righteous indignation that we have not learned the lessons of the Holocaust and watching genocide. And I was you know, you know, know, a, a teenage activist kid. Here we are today, you know, 25 whatever years later, and in the Balkan countries, they have formed a customs union. The same people who are literally slitting each other's throats and, you know, uh, you know piercing each other's bellies and, and killing each other, murdering each other by the hundreds of thousands, those countries now have a customs union with each other. Now you might ask yourself, well, why do, why do they go to all the trouble then of slitting each other's throats and having a genocidal war of dissolution? It's because they each wanted to govern their own unit, and they have the right to do that. But guess what? The smaller and smaller and smaller our countries become in the world, the less aut autarkic they can be, the less they can survive on their own. So more tribalism, more balkanization, more splintering, more states actually breeds inevitably the need for more connectivity, more infrastructure, more trade, more exchange. And that's what I call the devolution and aggregation dynamic. We split apart, we come together. It's Humpty Dumpty. It's Humpty Dumpty. It's a Humpty Dumpty theory of the world. That's actually what I called it in, uh, in a previous book. And that's literally, you can't deny what I'm not spinning a theory in a way for you. I'm not spinning a hypothesis about the future. I'm describing the last like 10,000 years of human history here. Oh, man. <clears throat> I think this is fantastic. And one, one of the things that comes to mind as you're describing this is it appears to me that with the rise of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, these kinds of things, then the ability for city states to exist without the without the um, the ability for a fiat currency for a large government that's far away to determine what's going on because they control the monetary policy. Do you agree? Do you think cryptocurrencies empower the city-state more than uh, people are right now recognizing? So a couple of things. You would have the city-state being more empowered even if you never had cryptocurrency because you have the elimination of information asymmetry, which is a fancy way of saying the more people in cities or provinces know about what's happening to their money, the more they have wanted to assert control over their over their their policy, right? So you have this phenomenon. Again, this is devolution. This is the meaning of the word devolution, right? And you have this in America. You have this all over the world. You have this in Canada, where British Columbia or the province of Western Australia or the city of Venice in Italy, they're all saying, or you know, Barcelona, the Catalans in Spain, they're saying, wait a minute, we pay in X amount of money to the capital city. 
and we get back half of X. Why are we doing that? That's a bad deal. And we don't like the inefficient way in which the federal government is managing our money. So we are going to assert more control. That's devolution. We've been, I've been tracking devolution for 20 years, way before I ever heard of Bitcoin. Well, I guess that's before Bitcoin even existed. So can cryptocurrency um, accelerate this process that's already underway? Sure, it can. But let's remember that it, it depends on the degree and the extent and the speed and the frictionlessness by which you uh, can, can, can operate that cryptocurrency or transition towards that cryptocurrency. Because let's remember that having your fiat currency managed by a central bank somewhere else is also there providing a public good to you because it costs you money to operate your own currency. If the Scots become independent and decide that they're not only going to become independent politically, but no longer use the British pound, they're going to have to set up their own central bank and their own currency and figure out how that currency relates to and has you know, an exchange rate with other currencies and build up large currency reserves in multiple currencies and do a hell of a lot of stuff that costs a lot of money and takes a ton of effort. Whereas you're kind of, at least for a while, better off sticking with the British pound. Right. So, you, you know, if you just say, well, we're Scotland, we're going to be independent and we're now going to use Bitcoin, um, you know, it might work, but you can't guarantee it. It takes time. But overall, I'm bullish because I'm bullish on the on, on this devolution. I'm bullish on individuals as, as agents and I'm bullish on connectivity. You put the, those three things together and you get the P2P civilization, as people call it, a peer to peer civilization. And one of the things I just read about on Twitter the other day is the, the, the deployment of this thing called WorldCoin. You know, completely neutral global cryptocurrency that simply has its own uh, as its foundation, the participation of everyone who can be part of it. And therefore, your ID links you directly to this currency that you share with other people. And you can basically have a global bartering marketplace in a way, or a marketplace in which you transact in whatever value you assess a service or a good to be worth in that world coin, you know, unit. So I, I totally, totally celebrate this. But I believe that it, it accelerates something that was already happening. And that, that, that's totally fine. I absolutely hate that we have to go, but I know you have uh, another thing to get to. So if people wanted to learn more, find your books, how could they go about doing that? Um, Paragkhanna.com. I'll spell it. P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A. -A -A. Um, and pretty much everything you could ever want to know is there. Yeah, that's right. And I would highly recommend um, going out and checking out your TED Talks. They are really strong distillations of a mountain of work that you've done. Parag, this has been a wonderful conversation. I hope you'll come back again sometime. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. I would love to, Vance. Great conversation. Thank you for having me on.